It's time for the podcast. Somebody shut that alarm off. Hey, welcome to episode 42 of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast. Hope everyone out there is having a great time. I hope you all had a great week and a great holiday weekend. This past weekend was Labor Day here in the States. It was Father's Day in Australia. And it was National Drinking Day in Ireland. How do I know this? Because I am tuned into the world, baby. Tuned into the world and all that happens within it. So hey, I hope everybody had a great week. I hope you all got out there and got to enjoy the world on two wheels. Uh, went camping, went racing, you know, went out to a motorcycle show. Whatever you did, I hope I hope it was fun, and I hope you got the whole family involved. Uh, I did not. I've been working on my carb, you know, being. Uh, a father and a husband and an employee, you know, I don't get paid to sit around and make crummy music for a podcast that I host. So what do I do? I work for a living. So, you know, having 20 minutes here and there to work on it, um, I really, you know, I went and checked the float. It's been something that was bugging me a while back. You all know that. Uh, I've been riding and I haven't been getting quite the fuel economy that I'm used to. So basically I decided to investigate. I've been having some troubles. I left it on. It's a vacuum carb. It's a CV carb. So is the petcock. It's a vacuum actuated petcock. Now, I've run different setups on this bike. I've run a few different um, fuel tanks, and depending on, you know, some of them had manual petcocks that I put in line, some of them just had uh, tubes coming out. This one is vacuum. Vacuum actuated is the OE carb that goes on the OE tank and the OE petcock. So basically, it's always on. However, there is like a shut off, you know, if it's, if you want to take the tank off, there is a position that you can put it in that the, that, uh, if the bike is on, the vacuum will still draw fuel, but if the bike's off, you know, the car won't run. So I put it, I left the fuel on to see what would happen and it did, it backed up and I thought, well, the float is overflowing, you know, what's going on with the float? It must be overflowing. Check the float. Float's good. So going to clean out the needles and jets and all that great stuff and get back on it. I'll probably do that tomorrow, but uh, yeah, in the 20 minutes here or there that I have free time, I got a chance to test it, put uh, take it apart, put it together, test it, and uh, do the fuel check. So it's still rideable, but I just won't mess with it. My other bike's getting uh, wiring harness redone on it, so down right now. Didn't go riding this week, but that didn't stop me from getting my head into the motorcycle space because, hey, I work with motorcycles, so that's great, right? So, at any rate, hey, I'd like to invite you right now at the top of the show, do a little house cleaning here, to go check us out on iTunes. Subscribe to iTunes on your phone or your desktop, or if you have some futuristic computing device that allows you to get stuff on there, maybe an iPod, I guess, you know, Check us out. Just get us get us in there on iTunes. And if you don't have iTunes, you can find us on the Google Play Store. You can find us in SoundCloud. You can find us in a plethora of podcatchers. So go there and do that. 
I'd like to say thanks to uh, Ireland, the whole country of Ireland, for taking over the number two spot in, in the ratings. Um, big thanks to Corey, Sarah, Paula, and Douglas, just to name a few who have checked out the show on SoundCloud. I'm not going to throw out a whole bunch of names because it's really hard to tell on SoundCloud who's a spammer and who is a real person. I know for a fact that these people are real. So thanks, guys, for checking it out. I think a lot of these peeps are from Ireland and the UK. And so really thanks. And I was really surprised to see Ireland for the first time up there in the rankings, period. I mean, heck, even um, like Hungary was up there before Ireland was. And now it appears that uh, we've gone green, baby. Green and orange. So thanks, guys. So as I mentioned, you can check us out on SoundCloud. Also check us out uh, if you like Tumblr and you like little pics. I don't really do a blog at Tumblr, but I do have a lot of pics. There are really a lot of cool motorcycle sites popping up on Tumblr every day. So uh, creative-riding tumblr.com is where you can find us there you can find us on twitter at at creative writing or i'm sorry at creative underscore writer and on the web at creative-writing.com so check us out at those places if you'd like to send the show an email hit us up at creative writing podcast at gmail.com just wanted to get all this junk out of the way in the beginning just because i'm not 100 percent sure i'll remember to do it at the end and uh, if you noticed on our Facebook page, there's just another place you can find us. Uh, we changed our logo and uh, changed it in the iTunes store and stuff too. Just fooling around with like a little logo design. I don't want to use work stuff to do my hobby. So I keep work at work. So I was finding some other programs that I can do graphic design with uh, at home and found one that is kind of doable. So just change my logo a little bit. Tell me if you like it. Tell me what you think. Tell me if you think my logo should be the kitchen sink. All right. First off, let's get into the show by talking about something I promised you we would talk about last episode, and that's BMW. So last week, I promised that we'd talk about BMW this week, and we shall. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was the carbon frames. BMW has, you know, has a lot of expertise in car construction, and it's bringing some of that expertise over to the motorcycle line. According to an article on MotorcycleNews.com, basically BMW is bringing over their carbon fiber expertise to a frame design. And there's two patents that they found that revealed a new carbon fiber frame, and the company is basically going to test the waters to make weight reductions supposedly of up to 40% compared to the current frames. And according to to MotorcycleNews.com, BMW leads the world in technology and capability to manufacture the carbon-based concepts. With BMW cars like the i3 and the i8, they already use full monocoque unibodies. And the 7 Series also has like a carbon fiber passenger compartment safety cell around it. So that means there's no doubt about the strength that carbon fiber provides and the capabilities. So it's just interesting that they're bringing it over to the frame side on the motorcycles now. And I've mentioned before that motorcycles are getting basically heavier and heavier with all the 
you know, the modules and the ECUs and, and if you have ESA and all this stuff that's getting put on them, that's going to control it. And, and I mentioned way back, uh, way back, I think episode four, perhaps that, that motorcycles are getting a, just a tiny bit heavier with each little bit of technology that comes on board. And pretty soon we're going to have a lot of the same technology that cars have on them as far as accident avoidance and awareness and all this and that. Um, as a side note, Austria has adopted the BMW i3 as a police cruiser, and the car is already used in the UK, Germany, and Italy. But the largest customer order came from the LA Police Department, which acquired 100 units, or has a put an order in for 100 units. So that's kind of interesting. And what does that have to do with motorcycles? Nothing. I just thought that was kind of interesting that... Um, the LAPD is going to be cruising around on those tiny little I3s. So the beam frame, BMW's carbon fiber frame looks a lot like a conventional aluminum, aluminum chassis, but the, the patents kind of revealed that internally it's different. And, and basically not to quote this, but they, they, I guess they call it protrusion or protruded a carbon fiber and that's just where they make basically tubes out of strips of carbon fiber and they're pulled through resin and then laid out one at a time heated up you know basically lets it cure and form it in the shape of some tubing and then they can cut that tubing to the desired length so they're basically making tubes out of carbon fiber race car brakes are already made out of carbon fiber uh there's a lot you know like i said the bmw already is using it in passenger cars but a lot of race cars also use it just basically for the rigidity that it provides and the weight savings that you get out of it so it's really interesting and this new protrusion or protruded uh carbon fiber frames is just sounds like, you know, they're basically just doing a little bit different process on an old, uh, technology or an old material. So basically they can make square section tubes that are only partially cured so that they remain malleable enough to be formed around a buck. And then they're added to some metal or other carbon fiber parts. And that's going to include the headstock and a pair of cross braces. And they're going to brace it uh, below the swing arm pivot and the other one on, on the top. And even, you know, where the rear shock mounts is going to be carbon fiber. So it sounds kind of sketchy because everybody thinks of fiberglass and carbon fiber really is just sort of like a metallic fiberglass, you know, like a metal infused, uh, well, it's a carbon fiberglass basically but the thing is is that it's it is it's super strong super strong and if you can make brakes out of the stuff you can make wheels out of the stuff heck whole bicycles are made out of the stuff and you know there have actually been carbon fiber frames in the past so so the beam frame is basically one of the designs and then they have a trellis frame and the beam frame is the one that is partially cured and it has square section tubes and long tubes and all this and that. And they're going to be making basically the whole thing. Um, carbon fiber sheets are going to be added to the outside and the inside walls, uh, kind of hiding the square section tubes and creating a f- familiar beam frame look that you're used to seeing. Um, but the whole thing is basically just going to get baked um, completely cure, cure the resin, and then those parts that were malleable, you know, those are going to form up real nice. So it allows them to form inner and outer structures using the carbon fiber. Now, the trellis frame, that one is, uh, according to the article, still labor-intensive, but it can be made a little bit quicker than the beam frame. 
And so basically, you know, it's pretty adaptable. It's intended for less exotic bikes where that, uh, you know, the beam frame is probably going to be used like on the S1000RR. The trellis frame can be used on the R's. It can be used on the GS's and stuff like that. And uh, just like uh, the metal the metal uh, trellis chassis, they can basically just join different lengths of, of um tube together to form the frame and the difference comes is that where the tubes are connected the steel trellis would be welded together well the carbon chassis basically clamps the tubes together so they use what the article called junction blocks that they're going to clamp the tubes to get together and they can be made from metal or carbon fiber um, they can easily change the dimensions and geometry I mean there's like you know there's no limit to when you're constructing a motorcycle to how you can shape it and how you can make it modular. So it's pretty, pretty interesting that they're going to be going to this because it's actually, um, the cost, according to the article, again, the flexibility and cost can be infinitely controlled depending on how much carbon fiber you want to integrate onto the frame and how modular you want to make it. Uh, if you've seen the R9T, I saw the, I saw the R9T concept a long time ago at Motor Show. Mm, I forget even what year it was. It was like 2010, perhaps. And this is before the R9T came out. And that concept was so cool just because it was modular. And they were talking about way back then about having modular platforms. And then once the R9T came out and it has like a cafe racer hump and like, or just a standard hump. And they even have like a rear end that's not street legal that you can buy for it. I mean, if you, uh, I don't know how hard it is to find now, but when it first came out, you could just go right to BMW and look in the accessories, and there was everything there. So making that stuff out of carbon fiber not only lightens it, but also you know makes infinite, infinite amount of uh, modular stuff that you can tack on the back there then. So it's a pretty smart idea, and it's probably going to be used for, you know, they're continuing with the R9T stuff. They even have two motors coming out, uh, apparently, so I'll get to that in a second. But... Just, you know, if you're having doubts about carbon fiber and frames and thinking, hey, this is, you know, crazy. How much do they flex? Like, are they rigid? What's this? You know, this and that. Um, just remember that this isn't the first time that carbon fiber has been used to make frames by any means. Uh, John Britton's motorcycle used carbon fiber for the frame and the swing arm. Uh, Kajiva and Bimota also tried out carbon frames, um, but with a little bit less success actually because they were too stiff and when the guys got the front of the bikes dialed in and then you make you like the front end suspension all set up you put them on carbon fiber frames and it was so stiff it kind of unseated everything that they had done and set it up for the aluminum frame and so they said there's not enough flex in it now and it's kind of pushing the front end or whatever it does so i mean you know carbon fiber can be extremely <clears throat> pardon me rigid and strong so in 2009 Casey Stoner piloted the carbon fiber framed GP9 Ducati for the 2009 season, and he won the debut race. Uh, I believe it was a, at uh, Cutter that he won that. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, to come right out of the bat to test with it and then just come out on the season opener and win the race is pretty amazing. So it's not unusual that carbon fiber is used 
you know, I guess in the motorcycling world somewhat, but you know, in cars, definitely not. I mean, there's a lot of carbon fiber used in cars. So if they can withstand the crashes with the extra weight and stuff that they have, it should be no problem for motorcycles. Uh, carbon fiber can be a solution to a problem that I mentioned a lot of episodes ago. And, you know, this is again, is referencing the new technology that brings heavy components. Uh, I've, I already mentioned modules, multiple ECUs, but I forgot about the ABS brake modulators, servos, um, exhaust actuators, all this stuff. And, and not just in the U S but in other countries where you might even have to have extra sensors and this and that every little thing that we add adds weight to the motorcycle chassis and then you add luggage and stuff like that. So therefore a 40% reduction in weight with the same amount of structural rigidity and strength could be a real game changer in the evolution of motorcycle construction. So we'll see if anybody else follows BMW's lead here into the carbon fiber frame. And I guess we'll get a chance to see, you know, if they do integrate this into something like the 1200 GS, we'll see how much weight and how much luggage and everything like that you will be able to carry. Already, the the frames on the GSs are very brittle and delicate from what I've seen. I've seen so many pictures of them snapped from real off-roading, not just, you know, fire roads and cruising down to the coffee shop, but real off-road adventures. People have busted swing arms and subframes and shock mounts and all sorts of great stuff. So it's not like uh, you can go down, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm sure that carbon fiber is just as strong as these metal frames that already break. So we'll see about that. Uh, it's no doubt that BMW will probably convert concept to product given their history of using it for car construction and uh, basically possessing all the capabilities to do so. The only question for me is when they will start production of a bike using this technology uh, because coupled with the new carb filings um, they have, like I mentioned just a second ago, the R9T Racer and R9T Pure motors, uh, or well, they've, I guess they're motors. I think it's bikes that they've put a, uh, put a carb filing in for, but it could be exciting to see these upcoming models come out for 2017 and they're using these carbon fiber frames. So hopefully we'll see. So it's going to be really interesting and it'll be interesting to watch the uh, S1000RR because they do road race that in, in a lot of series and a lot of uh, actual road races like Isle of Man, Northwest 200s and all that stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how that performs because I believe an S1000RR just set, uh, I think Ian Hutchinson and Michael Dunlop recently set like super fast times on those bikes at Isle of Man. So we'll, we'll see just how, how that all pans out. But 2017, I'm hoping, was already going to be a great year for new models based on all these Euro 4 regulations and factory obligations to comply. So making a bike more efficient, you can make it run cooler, you can make it lighter, all this stuff. So this is going to be really interesting to see. Um, also in the news, oh, I also said that we'd talk about the pricing. That's right. For the Scrambler, it was just released. And, uh, how does it fare compared to other Scramblers? Well, BMW's pricing for the R9T Scrambler comes in at 13,000 bucks and that includes APS. And I got to say that's MSRP. So it could be higher with tax destination charges. Uh, California always has an awesome emissions charge that, that, uh, goes on licensing, all that stuff. It could, you know, 13 is a starting point. So 13, even for this thing seems 
a little bit high for me when you compare it to other scramblers. Now, you are getting you're getting a 1200 and I guess you're getting BMW engineering, but you're also getting, you know, BMW reliability, which like I mentioned, it isn't, I don't know. They're, they're, they're delicate. They're good bikes, but from what I've seen, they're pretty delicate when they crash. So you, you don't ever want to crash them, but you know, as long as you can ride them and <laughs> that'd be great. Just the oil changes and parts for heaven forbid you go down, going to cost you another arm and a leg. So compared to the Ducati scrambler, uh, basically starts out at 8,500 and goes up to 10,000. So they're, you know, 3000 under, and that's, you know, the, the high end ones. So, I mean, that's already a problem that I can see so far. The Triumph Scrambler for 2015, that, that was retailing for, uh, 9.3 or well, 9.4 basically. So nine and a half. Um, that's kind of on par with the Ducati Scrambler. If you're you know, there's some middle of the road ones. Like I said, eight five to ten. That's that's basically their range. So nine and a half uh, slides right in there, pretty good. And then the 2017 Yamaha SCR 950, which is basically a scrambler based on the Bolt. Um, it's retailing or MSRP is eighty six nine. So BMW kind of went high with this thing, and for thirteen thousand bucks, I really want to want to get. You know, just a R9T with a brown seat. I mean, that's basically all this thing is. And it looks like it, from the pictures online, it's got the accessory high pipes that I, I was talking about that you can get as a modular add-on with the regular R9T. And I pretty much, they didn't even put like knobby tires on it. I mean, I guess hipsters are going to be a little bit upset at that. Probably remove the front fender, put knobby tires. They did put a brown seat. Um, so brown, chicka, brown, brown. All you hipsters that like that stuff. Um, that's what you're going for. I would just go for the R9T and, uh, get the cafe hump and like, you can get this, uh, exhaust if you'd like to eliminate the passenger pegs and whatnot. You can do that. I mean, you can basically the R9T is so modular. I wouldn't, you know, pay any extra just to make it a scrambler, I guess. Uh, it's easy enough to disassemble and, and make as you see fit. So yeah, a little bit high compared to the other scramblers out there. And the only reason I can see them justifying is the 1200, which is really an 1170 uh, air cooled though. I, you know, I'm just not a hundred percent sure why they would do that. Looking at the bikes together. They're basically all still air or air and oil cooled. So I don't really see an advantage that the BMW would have over any of the other ones as far as, you know, if you're going for the retro look, they're all air cooled. You know, the weight, I believe it's probably being a 1200, a little bit heavier or at least as heavy as most of the other ones. So I'm not really 100% sure who is going to be able to afford that $13,000 price tag for a scrambler type bike when you already, you know, can just make a scrambler out of a regular one. However, there are the people out there just like Ducatistas, there are Bimaristas and all that great stuff. So that's it for the BMWs. Let's move on. So something I just recently saw, I think it was yesterday probably, uh, there's retiring Super 6 number. If you remember Marco Simoncelli, he was a rising star in MotoGP. Uh, He 
died in a terrible accident in 2011 at the Sepang. And I remember watching that race live, and I think they edited it out later when they rebroadcast. But, uh, you know, I was watching the live race and just, it was a horrible, horrible crash. And, and it was so, it was unbelievable. You know, the guy was, had a big of a heart and personality as he had as, you know, as big as his hair, basically. And, um, it was a really sad day. And, and I thought that all the memorials they did were super fitting and, you know, everybody had nothing to say, but good things about the guy. So I think it's a really stand up move by Dorna and MotoGP to retire number 58. From what I read in an article, um, sport bike or road road racer magazine. I forget where I saw it. They said that basically uh, the family can still grant permission for somebody to use it, and um, you know that probably isn't going to happen. But at any rate, it, it, real cool move. So that was something interesting that popped up in the news this week. Other things that popped up in the news this week that I uh, previously mentioned. Uh, been bashing them or not bashing them. I've actually been reporting on them in every show. It seems like so far, just because they've been at the top of the news over and over and over. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's free publicity, but the stuff that's getting reported on is not very great. That's Harley Davidson. I mentioned before that I think Harley Davidson is this giant that's tripping right now and is stumbling. And I think that it is going to fall. Right now, they're spiraling downward. On a few episodes ago, I mentioned that they apparent there was some internet rumors a while back, maybe even before the beginning of the summer, that uh, a large investment firm that owns a lot of companies, my company included, were planning on buying Harley, and you know that was shot down by a bunch of different uh, sources and this and that. So, but I, I'm not 100 percent sure that they wouldn't reevaluate it now. And like I said on the last couple of episodes, I mentioned the turmoil that could be bringing America's number one selling bike manufacturer down. And there has been the annual clutch issues, the ABS debacle, the recent pro super tuner investigation and lawsuit with the EPA and the DOJ. Uh, pair those with some recent news of falling stock prices and declining sales. And Harley-Davidson really has a few spinning plates on their hands, right? They have Indian coming back into the fray, which doesn't help either. And their lead rider and GNC1 leader right now, Jared Meese, has been testing on the new Indian FTR 750. And, you know, I haven't seen anything confirmed. I haven't checked this week, to be honest. But I'm guessing he's going to make the jump to Indian as a rider in 2017. I don't think he would just test out the bike for nothing, you know, just to get Indian on the road. But at any any rate, there's a lot of stuff going on for Harley right now in the political, the race, and the business side of stuff. Now, via an article on penlive.com by the Associated Press, the company spokesman Michael DiMario said that about 1,300 union production employees at the York plant will remain after they make 200 job cuts. So that was basically the latest news is that they're going to be having to make around 200 cuts at their York, uh, the York plant. He says the company is getting closer to the final number. Uh, he was quoted as saying that, so that could mean that there could be more, there could be less, but, uh, the other employees there have been taking 
<clears throat> pardon me, taking on the different shifts and whatnot. So they're going to have to cut 200, which is just, you know, it's very sad. Um, I was speaking to my coworker about Harley because he's owned every other bike and he recently bought a Harley. Uh, the fact that they rely on the sales of the touring line for their overall profit, I thought could be an interesting thing for them to, to look at as well. Now, these are bikes that start at 18.9 with the Road King and go, they go up to there, you know, all the way up to like 30 some odd thousand bucks. And then you got like the CBOs and stuff, which are a little bit more. So in 2015, Harley-Davidson experienced a 4.9% drop in earnings per share, and their net profit also dropped from $844.6 million in 2014 to $752.2 million for 2015. I mean, that's we're, they're talking millions of dollars, but still, they, they lost over or around a million dollars in net profit. Now, and so far in 2016, uh, the, for the first quarter at least, the trend followed with a 7.2% decrease in net profit for, for the first quarter, and they were almost down $20 million compared to Q1 of last year for 2015. So, I mean, if you're, you're, we're talking year-over-year drops in the millions, you know what I mean? And this is actually despite the numbers showing that their unit sales are up 1.4% over Q1 of last year. And that suggests one thing. It's either that the cheaper models are selling better than the big dressers and baggers and trikes and all that stuff that's associated with the baby boomers. You know, we got aging consumers with established incomes that were buying this stuff before, and those guys are moving out. I've seen a heck of a lot of hipsters and young folks on sportsters. So the thing is, you got to sell more of those to make up for, you know, you basically got to sell about three of those to make up the price of one expensive bagger. So the conclusion that the conclusion that I made to my coworker is that they really, really, really need to rethink the product lineup, and they keep the marketing to hipsters and to contractors or laborers or whoever you know whoever's interested in these smaller displacement bikes, not necessarily a big tour or anything like that. I mean, there's still going to be a market for doctors and lawyers, but it's aging out and it's getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, the guys that can afford the big baggers usually are older guys that want to, you know, when you're young, you don't want a big old bagger. When you're older, things like ergonomics and getting away for an extended retirement and things like that start to matter a little bit more and more. Uh, I think one thing they, they should probably consider, I know that they have, they're hopefully going to have the live wire up. They've said, they've said about a five-year timeline on that, so 2021. And I think that's going to meld nicely into the EV environment that's going to hopefully be around in five years. We'll sweat to see how that plays out. But also, when things got rough a few years ago and the economic crisis was you know, in full swing, BMW did something really, of course, BMW again with some ingenuity and some marketing ingenuity. They cut back production of their bikes. Even things like their best sellers of the R1200GS and GS Adventure were scaled back and only produced in the months where they sold best. They really compiled a lot of sales data and consumer mining and stuff like that to figure out when these bikes were being sold. They also did pre-ordering so that if you had a model that wasn't you know, as, I guess, uh, popular, you could still pre-order it and that way they didn't go ahead and make 10,000 and not sell 10,000. That's been something with Harley that 
that I reported on the last issue uh, episode, I believe, is that when when a factory when a bike leaves the factory, they consider it sold. They push it out to their dealers, and then the dealers have to actually sell it in order for the brand to stay alive and move units. And so that's been a problem. That's been something that they've had to deal with also this year. Now, I'd like to remind you that Honda also has a Goldwing that sells for 30000 bucks, but Honda also has sport bikes, motocross bikes, ADV and dual sport, scooter, also ATV and side-by-side markets, both utility and sport, and not to mention generators, <laughs> automobiles, previously watercraft, a bunch of other stuff to fall back on. Harley has um, clothes and dog bowls and stuff like that, you know. So uh, I think if Harley does not get it together soon, that they're going to be in some serious, serious crises. And we've seen it over and over and over and over and over throughout, you know, the decades. I, w- I would also like to mention that Harley and the Davidsons came out. There's an Excellent, excellent show over at Adventure Rider Radio. If you go check that out, they talked to one of the actors on the show. And something that I did not, I figured Harley was probably in the pocket of the uh, production company and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously had a little hand in getting their name out there. Now the Indians making a comeback. You're going to have to go over to Adventure Rider Radio to find out if that's true or not. But I just thought that that uh, was interesting what I found out over there. Oh, well, with the news that Harley is going to be laying off 200 people at least, there's good news on some other side of this coin here. Honda has announced that they're going to be making a $45 million investment into their South Carolina plant, which will see the facility expand and add 250 new jobs. The expansion is going to focus uh, on the painting, welding, and final assembly and material service areas and basically expand the factory down there by 1,015, no, I'm sorry, 115,000 square feet. So that's going to allow them to ramp up production of ATVs and side-by-side vehicles, which are manufactured at the plant. And the president of uh, the plant, or of Honda South Carolina, Gary Mabry, said that with the rapid growth of the side-by-side market, they're focused on creating a flexible and efficient production in the, at their facility to meet the increasing customer demand. So there is a lot of demand for utility ATVs and side-by-sides, not only in the utility, but also in the sport market. So, I mean, this is it's great that they're you know expanding this. Um, right now they produce about 266,000 ATVs and 64,000 side-by-sides which include like the Pioneer models and stuff like that. So that's the uh, utility ones I'm talking about. So basically, according to the article I read, that the this latest round of investments comes on the back of $93 million being invested into facility in the past five years. So they really, really have been ramping up stuff there at the Honda plant down there. And um, if you're in that part of the country, South Carolina, basically it's super South. It's like South. It's like basically in Cuba. So if you're not familiar with the United States geography, it's a pretty Southern. Buy a cigar while you're there. 
Oh, our own Honey Buns submitted a little article for me from the LA Times. Apparently, Newcomb's Ranch has made some policy changes recently that would put a smile on Stephen Dubner and Robert Krolwitz's faces, but it's left a sour taste in the mouth of the weekend patrons. You get what I see what I did there? Sour, sour taste. Anyway, if you don't know what Newcomb's Ranch is, it is. It's a restaurant and a roadhouse. It's been servicing travelers in the Angeles Crest National Forest since 1939. It's located pretty remotely in the mountain range back there, halfway between L.A. and Wrightwood out here in California, which is south of Canada, north of Mexico. Um, as far as I know, it's the only restaurant and watering hole in the hills up there. I've ridden, you know, up through the hills multiple times, and that's the only building that's not like a uh, an outhouse or a ranger station that I've seen. So I think it's the only restaurant up there. And as such, on the east side at least, it it's packed on the weekends. There's like sometimes hundreds of, you know, sport cars go up there. So there's car clubs, motorcycle clubs, motorcycle rides, and just random people that cruise that because they like the uh, the twisties and they'll go up there and stop. So, I mean, on any given day, it's just crowded. But on the weekends, especially. Now... They recently enacted some changes to offset the problems that the large crowds bring, and these changes include the limited menu items, an 18% automatic gratuity, charging for water. I mean, those are the main things that uh, was brought to light in the LA Times article. Um, And here's an explanation for the changes. Let's start with the water issue, since it's an issue for all of SoCal right now, being in this uh, crazy drought. But the water is supplied by an on-site well, and it's usually not even consumed when it's provided for free. So to counteract the wasting, the owner, Fred Rundle, has started charging $1 for water. And if you listen to the Freakonomics podcast, you'll know there is a whole episode on the cost of things. You'll know that things that have basically at least some value, like a dollar or more, they, they, when they have that value assigned to them, they're perceived as more valuable than things that are given away for free. So if you're charged for a dollar for water, you really want it or you need it. You're parched or you're you know super thirsty or maybe in fact you're dehydrated and you're just craving water. You're willing to pay a dollar for it. So it probably doesn't sound like too much if you really want it. Then again, if you're comparing it to other restaurants who don't rely on a local well, by the way, they provide you water for free, you probably feel like you're being ripped off or charged exuberant price for water. So it, it, it's all relative. But I think that, you know, when you are when you can barely keep up with the demand because you're drawing from a well and a lot of times it goes, you know, untouched, I think you're probably better off for charging a dollar. Heck, it's cheaper than you can get it at the store sometimes. So at any rate, that's that's the change for that. Uh, you know, they also abbreviated the weekend menu choices, and this has put off a lot of regulars. Not only have some of the menu choices disappeared, but Rundle also decided not to offer decaffeinated coffee any longer. And when asked why, because of the article on the LA, the LA Times, he reported that nobody asked for it. So, you know, he quit carrying stuff that people didn't ask for, limiting the menu items actually may offer customers um, less meal options, but whether they know it or not, it also limits their wait times. And with so many choices available on the menu and huge crowds of people ordering at the same time, you can imagine how long it takes this little kitchen to get orders out. And I mean, I'm telling you, this place is remote 
and this place doesn't get a lot of business until the riders and car enthusiasts go up there cruising. So basically, you know, it, it does, I mean, it could take hours for food to get out, and sometimes people have been waiting an hour for the food to come. So by offering for your choices, they can streamline the grill and get more of the same food cooked at the same time instead of managing like 20 different little small batch process meals. And on a side note, they only do this on the weekends and after a certain number of patrons have entered the restaurant. So when it starts to become a real issue is when they'll start to you know offer these limited menu items and stuff like that. And as for the 18% gratuity charge, it's only applied on Sundays, which happens to be a very busy day for the ranch, especially if there's MotoGP or Moto America races on TV, because then people flock up there. So as you can imagine, uh, it was, you know, people probably aren't, you know, uh, 18% is not too bad, especially here in California. So they're just trying to keep up with you and with your demand. So, you know, don't fault them for that. All right, let's get on to our next subject for the show tonight. EPA. Why are they so annoying? Why are they ruining our fun? Well, early in January of 1913, we're going to go back in our time machine here, as we usually do on this show. A little boy named Richard was born in Yorba Linda, California. Little Ricky's parents were Quakers, and as such, he was brought up in an evangelical Quaker manner, and they refrained from dancing, swearing, drinking, you know, basically all the fun stuff. As a young student, he really excelled at sports, but he also liked his debate team and class politics. And as a young student, he was engaged in that stuff. He was, you know, really good at all the team sports, uh, really good at individually arguing things. And so therefore, he, you know, joined the debate team and uh, got into school politics and, and ran for office at school and all that great stuff that every little kid aspires to do. Uh, as a young adult, every morning at 4 a.m., he would get up and drive into Los Angeles to pick up local fruit and then bring it back to his family store to wash it and display it before heading over to Whittier High School to start his day as a normal student. Needless to say, in high school, you know, he excelled at everything and he was great. And after high school, Richard, now a bright young adult, headed to Duke University before returning to Whittier later to work uh, at a law firm. He would become a full partner a year later. So this guy is really good at everything he does ever since he's been a little kid. And I'm, I'm guessing his Quaker upbringing might have had something to do with that. Um, but apparently lawyers are good actors too, as he was cast in a local production called The Dark Tower when he met his future wife, Pat. Things were looking up for Richard, who was now going by Dick. You know, you don't want to be Richard. That's like an old man's name and Ricky's little kid's name. So you go by Dick, you know. Uh, Everything was going great for him until World War II. And that's when he joined the U.S. Navy, despite Quaker values, which actually prohibit it. You know, so he kind of went against the grain there. Um, In the Navy, he kind of repeated the success that he'd had all throughout his elementary and high school and college years. A very successful career in the U.S. Navy. Um, After he, well, he didn't retire quite from the Navy, but he turned to politics in the mid-40s. 
And running on an anti-communist campaign, Dick helped the Republicans of California's 12th congressional district take the seat away from the incumbent Democratic congressman. And basically, he effectively won his first campaign election, like right out of the box. And you got to remember, at this time, the Red Scare was a real deal. His political career took off and continued to rise throughout the 1950s. He beat out a bunch of Democrats. He took a hard line against communism and liberal voting practices. Um, Dick performed so well that in 1952, he was voted vice president. And soon after his election to the office, he began traveling to the East, to China in particular. He realized what a hotbed of industrial potential was laid out there, and he focused his foreign diplomatic relations on that region, um, even after becoming president of the United States of America a few years later. Although Tricky Dick Nixon took a step away from politics for a few years, he came back in 68 and won his bid for president. He called on the silent majority, which is what he called the people who were hippie-hating conservatives, and they elected him right into office, and that's just what they did. So despite his dislike for anti-war protesters, Nixon himself called for peace and an end to the Vietnam War, which was going on you know, right when he became president. Uh, he also continued his aforementioned diplomacy with the East, and with China in particular, and he visited China in 1972. He recognized that China had a wealth of labor in its population. He was willing to overlook the fact that Chairman Mao was a communist autocrat. And it's funny that Nixon had run on an anti-communist platform for his whole career so far. And I guess this, that's why they call him Tricky Dick. He didn't focus on China because he was thinking of outsourcing every possible job and manufacturing process to their artificially cheap workforce. I mean, that would happen, what, in the 90s or in the 80s uh, from the industries and capital groups themselves that were trying to make bigger profits at the expense of the American workers. So that's not exactly what he did, but he realized that it was over there. Um, no, he was generally concerned with keeping the peace with the 120,000 pound apes in the room, which was Russia and China, who were basically the friendly communists at the table. So that's mainly why he was interested in China is because at this time, you know, there was a lot going on, Cold War stuff going on. That part of the world was not, you know, I, we were doing a lot of proxy fighting. The Vietnam War was going on, and who was paying for the Vietnam War? The Vietnams were communist, and the South Vietnams were not. So it was really hard. The South Vietnams, that sounds like a band. The South Vietnamese were not communists. We were basically just trying to stop the spread of communism with the Vietnam War. And in order to do this, he knew he had to, like, you know, play the diplomatic game. Uh, but meanwhile, in Latin America, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East, the little commie apes were running amok in their own backyards and threatening to throw a monkey wrench into this whole delicate works that was going on uh, on a much higher level. So Nixon was naturally suspicious of Cuba, very, very weary of Russia's cooperation with that island nation. And without upsetting Russia, he wanted to expel communism from Cuba. We, we know how well that worked. Uh, he probably just wanted to put outboards on the whole country and zip it back over to the Baltic Sea where it would have been more welcome. But in other places like, you know, in other Latin American countries like Chile, 
things conveniently worked out for the Nixon administration when the Marxist ruler Allende was killed by the dictator Augusto Pinochet. Um, guess who was backing Pinochet? Then there was the Middle East and the beginning of where our story as fossil fuel guzzling motorheads takes root. So to get there, we got to talk about some other stuff. So President Richard Nixon wasn't just running around making amends with communist nations and pissing off smaller communist countries just for the fun of it. During the 1950s, the Red Scare was a real thing to the general public at the time, much in the way that like global climate change and terrorism have been worrisome issues for many countries for the past couple or few decades. So to end the Vietnam War, he had to confer with the backers of North Vietnam, basically Russia and China. And likewise, those countries had to negotiate with the U.S. in order to end the proxy wars that had started sort of all over the world, basically in favor of one sociopolitical ideal over the other. Uh, this extended into the Middle East since Russia had a super strong tie to the Arab world as an oil consumer and a general supporter of Egypt and Syria, while the U.S. kind of backed Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. <clears throat> Ironically, they would come back and sort of bite us in the butt, just like every other nation that we've put our finger in their ear over there has. So basically... There was a war going on in the Middle East that the USA and Russia were heavily involved in via proxy fighting, and Russia-backed troops started it all when they attacked Israel during the Yom Kippur War. So, while the two superpowers were kind of working out a truce on paper after the war started, you know, and they're trying to get down to brass tacks here, the Israelis were busy kicking ass and taking names, and they finally won. Now, the Arab OPEC oil-producing and exporting countries decided that there was more than one way to win a battle or to win a war, and they stopped selling crude oil to the U.S., and they raised gas prices around the world, and the ensuing oil crisis of 1973 stopped America in its tracks, quite literally. Now, I wasn't around at this time, but I do remember people talking about gas lines, um, not a gas line like you think of... uh, a hose that gas runs through, but literally miles and miles of people waiting to get into a gas station because of uh, there was rationing, and you know fuel rationing was a big thing. Of course, uh, you know cars at the time weren't very efficient, so we're about to see some of these <laughs> doors open and other doors close. So, although l- l- we got to step back just a little bit further from this, so we're, we're at the oil crisis. Let's step back and kind of get into you know, the things that were kind of leading up to it. So although conservation and the environment had not been a real topic of discussion during the election of 68, the public had these issues on its mind. They just didn't talk about it that much. A couple years later, Nixon saw that interest take form and manifest itself when the first Earth Day was started in April of 1970. And so realizing that there was an opportunity there to be proactive on this subject, he announced the establishment of the EPA in June of that year. Now, other acts and organizations that sought to make the American quality of life a little bit better soon started popping up left and right. There was the Clean Air Act, 
the National Environmental Policy Act, which makes, you know, it's required that you do an environmental impact study nowadays before you can start most projects, even, you know, local projects. There was a formation of OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. There was the Clean Air Act. And I mean, all these things came right after one after another uh, in like 70, 71, 72. So, you know, other things that affect us as riders took hold as well, such as the federalization of Medicaid and some health care reforms that focused on the support of HMOs, which are health maintenance organizations, and both the private and state-run health care plans based on income and cost sharing. There was some revision there. So if you've crashed or been in an accident lately, your work or your private insurance um, that you pay for out of pocket or your employer pays for you has no doubt paid for you. Your treatment and recovery. So he was part of implementing that. Uh, on another side note, you know, he was, uh, he did like a, a, what is it? The Endangered Species Act. He did, he did a few things that really changed the way people started thinking about conservation. And, you know, that all began because of the environment and everything started to become an issue of discussion. So when the oil crisis began in late 73, it exacerbated the already super complex political and social landscape that had enveloped America at the time, partially being, you know, the Vietnam War, communism, uh, all these things that he was trying to implement as soon as he got in, you know, a couple of years in the office, he's taken on the CPA sort of thing. And nobody had heard of that before. So there's a bunch of stuff. Now, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on and this cake has so many layers that we can't eat it all at once. So I'm going to try to stick to the matters at hand and the vestiges of the policies that still remain today that we're dealing with, such as the EPA, the Clean Air Act and all this stuff that you can go either way on. Now with the formation of the EPA and the enactment of the clean air policies a couple of years prior, the oil crisis should have been this blessing in disguise, right? Because this here's this opportunity to uh, reduce our reliance on foreign oil, which they wanted to do anyway after this, initiate projects and other technologies, but instead it was a super crippling nightmare. Um, things like electric and hybrid vehicles or hydrogen fuel cells, I mean, that was like something that could have been started right then instead of waiting decades to do it. Uh, during my research for The Dale in episode 38, I saw articles from the from that time period from the the early 70s Volkswagen had hybrid gas and electric van that was that they were working on and I never heard of it so I don't think it ever went to production but people were doing people were finding solutions for the time I heard these legendary myths about solutions like you know one claim I heard was that Volvo had developed a car capable of 70 miles per gallon but by the time it was ready for testing and like to actually come to market the oil embargo had already ended and you know, big oil companies have run things in the United States for a very long time. They're not going to let that cash cow go to pasture just yet, right? So there was another rumor about the Myers, I think it was called the Myers hydro engine. I'm not 100% sure. I don't remember any of this stuff. But apparently this guy had invented an engine that ran on water. The government showed up and snapped up the patent and the plans. And then later the guy wound up face down in his soup shortly after because, you know, 
the government was in the big oil companies' pockets and all this stuff. I, you know, super super crazy conspiracy theories. Some sometimes they're not as crazy as they sound. But I only heard about these in my early twenties from like a crazy acquaintance. So I don't know if the names or the facts are even real at this point. All I do know is that the oil crisis exposed this gaping hidden wound at a time when the country and the rest of the world, for that matter, were already kind of on shaky ground. Now, you know, to make things worse, we we were having this proxy war with Russia in the country where, you know, the our oil is coming from. So we were already trying to rely a little bit less on foreign oil and get our domestic uh, production up. But this just showed us right here that it was totally impossible and that we had not planned for this at all. Now, without keep digging into this huge layer cake of history, it's important to understand that the oil crisis and the solutions to foreign oil dependency were kind of secondary actions to the greater game of political chess that was unfolding on this world stage, which was, you know, all the wars that were going on, all the people that we were backing, the fact that we were a democracy and these huge communist superpowers were backing these other countries. I mean, there was a lot of crap going on and a lot of foreign diplomacy and, and, you know, the seventies, there was disco, there's all sorts of just terrible stuff going on. So we're going to have to not dig so far down to that. We're going to try and focus on the EPA and stuff. So in an effort to curtail oil consumption, the Nixon administration instituted a national 55 mile per hour speed limit. So previously, states had set their own limits, and a lot of the western states grumbled because they have these long stretches of highway, they have twisty, you know, just straight roads for miles or barren roads, and so there was no reason to go that slow to get to place A to B. But when you don't have fuel-efficient cars and stuff like that, what do you do? You reduce the speed limit. Um, They grumbled, but... If they did not comply, they would lose their funding and approval for any DOT projects, which in the United States is the uh, Department of Transportation. So if you wanted to get a road built or a highway done or a bridge fixed, nope, you're not going to get it done unless you comply with this. So it was a pretty easy thing to do. And for the longest time after that, vehicles sold up until, I want to say in the mid-90s, would have like a big red square on the uh, the speedometer, right? Or like a block around 55. It's so funny. I, I had an old car that, you know, had the 55 circled. Like, hey, man, here you go. Don't go past this. So they, they kind of had that in place for for few decades. So along with the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit, you know, after Nixon resigned, Gerald Ford's administration would later impose fuel economy standards, which I assume was the impetus or at least the seedling for today's CAFE standards, which is the corporate average fuel economy standards. If you're not familiar with those, those dictate that cars get this amount more um, efficient every year. So blah, blah percent, you know, year over year over year more efficient. Now, how you offset those and still have big trucks is that you might have like a heavy truck line, like a lot of Fords and Chevys and Dodges still have their big old work trucks, you know, their diesels, their, you know, the F-250, Chevy Z71, 1500, whatever they have. Now those are offset by their little crummy cars. And a lot of people wondered like, why are you driving around a Geo Metro, you know, or a three cylinder little hunk of junk? Well, 
they got to offset the big trucks. The big trucks might be what sells for this company, but you make a f- super tiny fuel efficient car and it offsets your cafe standards. And there you go. You're able to comply. So although the left and most Democrats hated Richard Nixon, politicians from all walks of life supported the creation of the EPA because at that time there were some serious problems facing the nation's cities, towns, tribes, and natural areas. So today, to to some degree, the EPA is seen as a big bad ape in the room, punishing groups like Harley-Davidson, Volkswagen. If you go to the EPA website, there's actually just a tab that says Volkswagen on it. Uh, The motorsport community in general, as I reported a few episodes ago, and and we kind of tracked ever since January when they said they were going to regulate uh, track day vehicles and and motorsport vehicles, and then they kind of revised that. They had until July to revise that. We tracked that. They do, you know, that's a fear for motorcyclists and any sort of uh, motorsport enthusiast in general is that you're going to be illegal. Just like Harley Davidson's been selling their pro super tuners for 20 years, they allege, and now they're illegal. They got to buy 20 years of stuff back. So it's, it's a sketchy deal. The, Really, though, in actuality, when it was established, there was a serious need for health and safety improvements for both workers and communities dealing with pollution, environmental destruction, worker safety, and the depletion of natural resources. If you step back and look at this time, and even still today, I mean, this is forty more than 40 years ago, and we still have things like mining. Uh, we, we recently had a mine levy break and a lot of stuff that they use for strip mining and all the chemicals that they use for mining went into a river and turned it orange, you know, back east. So there's a lot of things that still happen that the EPA is still dealing with uh, that they've been dealing with now for 40 years. So there are several media portrayals about the status and the policies policies of this time as well. There's movies like Prophecy from 1979 and Soylent Green from 1973. Both of those warn of the effects of pollution and overpopulation, and I guess Soylent Green to some degree was decimation of natural resources. There's books like Dr. Seuss's The Lorax from 1971 and Wump World by, I believe the guy's name was Bill Pete from 1970, and those those also warn about pollution, decimation of natural resources, over overpopulation, things like that. Then there's commercials, and one of the most famous ones I remember as a kid is Iron Eyes Cody and his famous little teary eyes is looking at just a lake full of trash. Also, songs like Lord Mr. Ford by Jerry Reed, those things really left a footprint in American culture, and they signaled a change in the public awareness about the environment and their willingness to want to do something about it. Uh, Something that I found in my research was really interesting. The EPA actually started a a Documerica series of photographs where they had all these famous photographers go out and take interesting snapshots of the times and basically get on film reasons that we should be excited for change. And there's a lot, you know, they wanted to focus on life, the environment, and basically the 70s and what life's like. And, you know, the reasons that we do need a a federal um, agency to come in and, you know, basically kind of help us clean things up if we can't do it ourselves. So 
one listen to episode 167 of The Dollop. It's an American history podcast. That'll change your mind about the past and the romanticized view of living in the past. Now, that episode is about life in New York City around the turn of the 20th century, and it's disgusting. It'll make you realize just how bad America was and how dirty it was. And until the 1980s, America was a fairly filthy place. And I mean, hell, if you live in LA, San Francisco, Manhattan, it can still be a smoggy or a trashy mess depending on the day. Um, People like Erin Brockovich have become famous. She wouldn't even have a career if it weren't for like super crummy industrial practices and the deterioration of human health as a result of these things. So I think we can all agree that dumping toxic waste into community water supplies is a bad thing, but it's kind of hard when you're especially a motorsport enthusiast to see some of the positive things that the EPA has done, especially if you live on the end of the stick with the splinters in it, right? So just to kind of talk about it a little bit, since I've lived in LA, I've been here for 10 going on 11 years. I've seen, I've actually visually seen downtown more times than anyone in the 1990s ever did. And that's because it has cleaned up. I heard stories of people who have lived here all their life saying that you couldn't even see across the street some days. Now, granted, there are still days where, you know, you can't see it. You can barely make it out through some of the haze, and and that's normal, especially during the hot summer months. But uh, after a nice rain, everything's beautiful. You can see out to Catalina. It's great. But, you know, in the the 80s and 90s, you would be good to see down the block, according to some people. And that's not only because of the EPA regulations, but CARB legislation as well, which is the California... Air Resources Board. Yes, here in California, we have our own special little hell that's probably much stricter than the EPA. Yet, as a result of both of these agencies, the recent wildfires that happened a couple months ago posed the most hazardous threat to air quality in contrast to vehicle and factory emissions than, you know, back in the past when just walking outside and driving, you know, you were sucking up so much smog and haze due to the factories and cars and everything else around here. So nowadays when, when you basically just have to kind of worry about wildfires and certain days where a lot of people are traveling, I mean, that's, it's a great improvement. And the fact that you can actually see across town that tells you something. So LA still has some pretty crazy fat oil and grease laws and hazardous waste disposal rules and things like that. And when I last checked, it was illegal to remove fogs or fat oils and greases from businesses like restaurants and stuff like that in Los Angeles city, because they refined the grease for use in fleet vehicles. I know a lot of the buses and stuff are, are compressed natural gas. I know a lot of them are apparently like clean, you know, a lot, a lot of the train, all the Metro around here is electric. So they really have kind of moved away from diesel and gas powered stuff to super, super clean alternatives. And I don't know if it's still true, the fog law stuff. I mean, I know the fog laws are still true, but I don't know if the city still refines grease and uses, you know, used restaurant grease to power their fleet vehicles anymore. Um, But I'd read that somewhere. Now, speaking of carb, uh, there was an interview 
with Marketplace.org, and they interviewed the chairman of CARB, Mary Nichols, and she said that in 1975, a game changer called the catalytic converter was required on all cars sold in the U.S. Now, according to her interview, automakers were super reluctant to recognize that smog was real and also it added cost to their vehicles. They didn't want to pass the cost down the line to the consumer. The consumer may not, you know, they don't want to buy it, but now it's enforced. So uh, to quote Mary Nichols in this great article by Sarah Gardner, it says, It's like the stages of grief. At first you deny it, then you fight against it, and finally you grudgingly accept it, embrace it, and move on. And that's basically what automakers did. Apparently, you know, obviously cars had to have catalytic converters from 75 on. So consumers, as well as automakers, were reluctant to give up their cars and their dependency on oil. Even in this crisis, some people sat in line for hours to get gas for their car rather than try to figure out a different way to do it. Biking, I mean, at that point, we were probably up shit creek pardon my french but you know we're probably commuting already i mean california has always been a freeway dependent state because a lot of people live in the burbs commute to the city so i don't know if trains and buses and stuff like that would have been the answer at this point but that's what i'm saying you know i mentioned earlier rip this gigantic hidden wound to open and now we can see it for what it is and the key was and always will be technology catalytic converters being part of that so we're going to talk about what that did in a minute but as motors have become more and more efficient and smog compliant cars are still way faster than they were back in the 70s 80s or even the 90s with the exception to some supercars but i'm saying most passenger vehicles have smaller and or more efficient motors year after year after year while increasing horsepower. So motorcycles are doing the same thing. I mean, you know, we just have Euro 4 come out and a lot of motorcycles already comply with that. Kawasaki released this beast that you may have heard of called the Ninja H2R. It's got a sub 1000 reactor, I'm calling it, producing 326 brake horsepower. It's 998 cc's putting out 326 ponies. So that's only about 100 horsepower less than the 5 liter 2015 Ford Mustang. It's way, it's actually more, I think, than like the 1990 Ford Mustang. So that's that Mustang is 5,000 cc's putting out 435 versus the little 998 putting out 326. I mean, that's pretty incredible if you think about it. And that is right now in the cafe standards and with smog and Euro four and all that stuff. I mean, so they're still doing it. They're still making that sort of horsepower with this size of engine. So it's technology. It's all it is. And if those numbers for the H2R are too puke inducing, there's even an EPA compliant version that spits out still 210 horsepower. That's still enough to stand your toenails on end. And that's right up there with the BMW S1000RR, which is also street legal. I believe it puts out 190 or 200 horsepower. So, I mean, we're talking more horsepower than I used to race a Volkswagen and that that's like double the horsepower that that stupid car had, you know what I mean? And that car would get up to 100 miles an hour easy, you know, on a 
short straight. So, I mean, it's just incredible what sort of horsepower we're churning out of motors that are like less than half of what, you know, I used to race. So it's, it's pretty incredible. Now, what does all this do? You know, 1975 comes along, catalytic converters. We're already getting choked by the smog stuff happening because of the oil embargo. So it's true that the smog laws probably killed the muscle car era. But at the same time, those cars would have evolved regardless. I mean, we weren't driving the same cars in the 70s that we were in the 50s. We moved from like the Art Deco bubble style, old Plymouths and Dodge, you know, the Fire Chief and all this great stuff. We're we're driving GTOs and Cobras and, you know, Opal Cadets and Ford Pintos. But you know what I mean? Like these cars were you know, extremely different than the cars just 20 years ago. So, or 20 years prior to them, I should say. So, I mean, you know, they, they would have kept evolving anyway. So it's not like the EPA killed the muscle car era. I mean, eventually they had a change anyway. And, and all these things kind of came together just at the right time to actually, you know, for whatever reason, people gave up on car design in my opinion. I mean, the eighties was such a crappy time. You go look at a car from the eighties compared to anything from the seventies. And it's like, what happened? You know? Um, so given the strict carb standards coupled with the EPA compliance, California still has and had a pretty good hot rod bike and car scene. And nowadays carb and EPA, we have all these even more strict stuff. And I mean, we still got a pretty bitchin' hot rod and bike and car scene. And, and if you have an older car, they're exempt. I think 81 and older is exempt. So, I mean, you know, they're not against you having these good cars because they know you don't drive them as much as you do, or they know that a handful of eighties hot rods, um, and pre eighties hot rods is going to be okay. It's not going to, you know, be driving them as much as, uh, you know, commuting five hours to work in a van pool or something. I don't know. So anyway, they just, all, all cars have been doing is burning cleaner and getting a little quieter over the years. And even the Miller Brewing facility that's uh, nearby me doesn't emit as much steam or whatever that white gas coming from the stacks is as it used to. There's a bunch of factories here in L.A. And, you know, they used to spew out stuff from the top. So they don't do that anymore. And it's all because of these regulations. So somehow everybody's staying busy and staying in business despite the fact all these regulations are taking place. So, you know... Other goals of the EPA include preservation of natural resources, but even more dangerous than the EPA, to me, are these other lobbies and crazy specialty groups that try to get public recreation lands closed for OHV use, or worse yet, booby-trap them. You know, go back a couple episodes and listen to that. So on the flip side of the coin to them, we are the specialty group that's trying to get lands open so that we can essentially wreck them. We're brapping all over the natural terrain and leaving emissions droppings all over the place like a giant motorized cow, and that's not exactly great for the environment. The finer point, though, is that recreational users are usually the biggest conservationists when it comes to protecting the lands that we like to enjoy. Whether you're a mountain bike rider, you know, doing volunteer work on the trails on the weekends, or you're the uh, organizers and promoters of SCORE, 
which is an off-road racing organization, you know, they, they try to keep communities and racers alike safe during these risky competitions. Recreational users, whoever they be, we need a place to enjoy the outdoors. And therefore, we need to find a balance for use versus the alternative, which is being shut down altogether. So I think that, you know, people that recreate are the ones that want to see things preserved. They love to go out and enjoy nature, enjoy the trip, enjoy the road, whatever, you know, and they're the ones that want to see that stuff kept. And that's, you know, same. a lot of people can make the same sort of argument. So at any rate, the EPA isn't all bad. And despite differences in individual interests, the environment is a serious issue that everyone can agree needs to be preserved and improved upon no matter who you are whether you're enjoying it to recreate on or whether you hate seeing people you know take advantage of it like that and you don't want them on it both people want it conserved and i think that's the issue here so if we still operated like we did back in the 40s america would basically look like india or china how they look now Uh, a lot of immigrants in eastern los angeles county are from China, a lot of the immigrants from China, rather, uh, or the surrounding region, they often wear masks on their faces just out of habit when they move here. And it's crazy. I see a lot of older, uh, you know, immigrants with, and not first gen people mostly, but mostly the immigrants all walking around with long sleeves all the time and masks on because that's how bad it was to cruise around certain parts of China. The smog, get on your skin, get in your lungs, kill you, right? And a while back, at one time at least, trash fires were so numerous in India that the whole country looked basically like that unpronounceable volcano from Iceland or Norway or whatever that blackened skies and halted air travel a few years ago. Uh, So yeah, at any rate, you know, we could be like that if we didn't have some of this stuff going on. So luckily we were smart enough to, you know, take matters into our own hands on state levels. The EPA helps the states with funding and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's kind of another way to look at it. They're not always enforcing stuff. They're also helping fund stuff. So concerning motorsports, groups like AMA and SEMA, they're actually pretty powerful lobbies that help us preserve and pursue the activities that we love to do today. And I'm assuming that they're going to be there in the future for us, at least as long as we support them. And I'm sure. So as a society, we're always changing and making advancements to our stuff. And I mean all stuff. You know what I mean? Cans with strings between them were replaced by phones, which were replaced by cordless phones, which were replaced by cell phones. And someday they'll probably be replaced by a wireless communicator embedded in your tooth or something. So motorcycles and cars are the same way. We went from really heavy and slow replacements for horses or horse-drawn carriages to basically tools of transportation and some real changers of industry because I don't know how many horses it would have taken back in the day to carry a load of what a big semi-truck and trailer can carry now. You know what I mean? So not only did we just use them for transportation of ourselves, we really changed industry. And not long after a vehicle's creation in any country where they were developed, but competitions began, right? 
And I talked about that either last episode or the episode before that, how in France they were on it. And the European Union already had their own like races right out of the bag, right? So as long as there are wheels on something, there will always be feats of speed and endurance. And the thing is, is they won't always be fueled by oil and petroleum or gas or petrol. They won't always be tests of speed and engineering based on combustion engines, So solar and electric race cars have been around for a very long time now. I mean, decades, right? At least decades for solar. And I'm guessing longer for electric since the first vehicles that we had before we had combustion engines were steam and electric. And these solar and electric race cars that are around now that are like super developed and stuff, they're they're not because of the EPA. They're basically because... um, people want to get into this, you know what I mean? And people are interested in making something of human power, solar power, alternative power. So that has nothing to do with the EPA. It's like a side benefit. And I vaguely remember reading an article in Car and Driver, Popular Mechanics or something, like a while back, 1999, 2000, something like that, that stated that a certain percentages of all cars sold in California, I think it was, maybe they said the nation, but I know California had to be Zebs, which is a zero emission vehicle, which zero emission can also be like partial hybrid fuel cell. You know, it's not electric specifically. It's just something that has uh, super low and offset emissions. So I think... I don't remember 100%, but I think the Ford Think City that was basically like this little plastic car made out of little tykes material, Um, the Honda Insight, I mean, those things were shown at the San Diego International Auto Show, and no one really took the bait. They looked at them and said, that's interesting, you know, this thing is really... you know, I don't know. It, it was interesting to look at, interesting concept, but I mean, will it sell? That's basically what automotive dealerships want to know. Will it sell? And I'm sure motorcycle dealerships the same way. And uh, so with the Insight did sell in California, but I think it should have been named the Unsightly because despite its intentions, its looks just were terrible. And it's not with what people associated with the future unless the future was like a homely robot nerd. Uh, by the way, I miss you, Tobor. You're a lonely ho- uh, homely robot nerd and a lonely home homeboy nerd. So anyway, regardless, I think that the government overestimated the power of the consumer, basically. Companies invested billions and have invested billions into EV technology and design over the years, but you can't just roll out a car in one year, um, especially an electric car, and especially if you don't have the infrastructure and all that stuff laid down. So, I mean, you know, you can you can force the public... You can't force the public to buy cars that they don't want or even need at the time. We don't really need electric cars still. Um, several different documentaries out there about the electric car by the way so go check those out but unless it's the mid 2000s and those cars are escalades on 22s you can't force anybody to buy them i remember when everybody was snapping up suvs do you remember that and then gas hit like five bucks a gallon and all of a sudden people are riding the bus yeah poor investment but you can't tell people that it is people love their eskies with big old giant crazy wheels on them so i mean that's just how people people would rather have the bite of popcorn now than get a whole bag of popcorn later so 
That's just how it works. And and since then, California has implemented a tiered plan. They realized this consumer driven, you know, it's called supply and demand and free markets, baby. Get get uh, used to it, right? It's been been a part of democracy forever. So they realized this wasn't going to happen. They gave a you know buyers and sellers incentives to go electric by offering state and federal tax rebates. Uh, you can ride dirty in the HOV lane if you have a Zev car, which you already can on bikes. So really, who the frick cares, right? So in short, the EPA has worked to clean the country up and restore some natural areas to their previous splendor, but they're also influencing the state governments to do the same without government incentives. And California is a huge example of that. California has a ZEV mandate, uh, which is one such achievement. And the previously mentioned tiered plan started way back in 1990, and it just never happened because of the reasons I said. You can't roll a car out that fast. Um, When they realize that you can lead a consumer to electric car, but you can't make them drive it, they extended the mandate out to 2025. So from 1990 to 2025, that's a considerable chunk of time that you're putting out there that you want something done. I mean, you've wanted it done immediately. So, I mean, that's just saying, you know, we'll give you like, what is that? Like 40, 35 years, right? So, I mean, that's a long ass time to get something basically put into effect and then say, Hey, we are going to have this by this time. We, we wanted it in five years, but okay. We realize that you can't change a country or society overnight. 35 years is probably a good timeline. So it's been revised several times too, as the rollouts and lead times were missed by automakers. Infrastructure isn't there. Infrastructure is getting made. Uh, I know Bill Clinton, one of his like legacies that he was really, really proud of was the hydrogen highway i really haven't seen that take off yet but that was one of the big things that he's still uh you know promoting and and trying to get made so but according to this uh, zev mandate which has been adopted by 10 of the states by the way uh 15 of the vehicles sold in the state must be a zev which i said before isn't strictly electric it's just a zero or super low emission vehicle um 15 that's about one in seven and that's quite a lot so needless to say we got a little bit of work on on our hands for us but 35 years if you quit offering g- giant stuff or you quit offering you know basically how do you get somebody to to not drive a car um, without an airbag, you don't sell them without airbags anymore, right? So I think that's kind of what they're they're looking to do. They're trying to make you know battery technology is catching up, infrastructure is catching up, all the stuff that's catching up to what the EPA or what California, I guess, wanted done back in 1990. It's like, hey, we want you to do this, and it's like, whoa, dude, we don't even have that yet. So yeah, needless to say, we've seen bikes become more and more efficient, and ride by wire is a thing on most bikes um fuel injection multiple engine mapping there's a bevy of traction control settings and abs capabilities now even on dirt bikes all that stuff is becoming available and they're controlled by multiple modules ecus imus everything else right so like i said you know what was the solution to making cars better in the 70s it was technology so what's the solution now technology everything you know the next logical step is electric motorcycles and i know you know just like the guys that love the hot rods 
thought that they were going to get wiped out in the year 2000. You know, like, we're going to be like the Jetsons. No, they're still around. People still drag race old Novas and all that great stuff and old Malibus and all that hot rod stuff from the actual hot rod era. But you know what? People also drag race electric vehicles. So, I mean, it's just, it's pretty crazy what you can achieve if you put your research and development in certain areas, it's not going to ruin the, the love for speed. All you, all you may not get the fire and the smoke and the bang, but you will still get the speed. So if that's all that you care about, then the switch should be pretty easy, right? So earlier this year, Paris banned older bikes and older cars in the city at all during certain times. I mean, I think it might, they might have revised it down to only on weekends or only on summer weekends or big tourists. I don't know exactly. I'm not going to go into that without researching it. But I mean, they, they outright banned vehicles from the city older than a certain year. So, I mean, that tells you other countries have had similar laws on the books for quite a while. I know my friends that used to live in Mexico had stickers on their car. You could only drive this car Monday and Wednesday, um, you know, to reduce pollution. The, the way they got around that is they each family owned about 20 cars. So it's only a matter of time before air quality or the convenience of obtaining fossil fuels basically outweighs the ever-increasing battery technology and clean air energy solutions that we're coming up with. So pretty soon, you know, the co- just the cost of fracking and getting all these fossil fuels and then like having a levee break or oil rig catch on fire, kill people, pollute the ocean, you know, pollute uh, communities, drinking water, all that stuff is basically just going to say, you know what, the cost of this, the social cost of this, the actual financial cost of this, we're better off. Just we got this battery stuff now. We don't need all that crap, you know, so it's going to be interesting. We may be racing motorcycles one day on a track through a field of those big, crazy windmills, you know, on our, on our electric motorcycles, but at least it'll be quiet and it'll be peaceful and we'll still be going just as fast. And as we know, Electric Motors still has all the torques. So at any rate, if you want more information on the EPA, you can go to the EPA.gov. I found their historical site to be like the least informative resource ever, but the main site has like a lot of current issues on it and there's a blog and it'll give you an idea just about how many areas the EPA involves itself. I mean, we're talking natural disasters. I'm sure FEMA was part of the EPA, you know, a little branch of it. So they're talking about flooding, the mosquito outbreaks right now, um, you know, the Volkswagen debacle. So they got like air. They're talking about underground storage tanks that were buried with either fuel, contaminated waste, whatever, farm waste, all this. I mean, they, they cover so many different areas and I am sure they get other departments, um, cooperating with them. So I'm sure that, uh, you know, the CDC is on them cooperating with the Zika virus, hoping to get, you know, that eradicated and the mosquito population under control. The CDC is probably telling them, Hey, this is what happens when the mosquitoes come in, blah, blah, blah. So the EPA tries to control the mosquitoes. So, I mean, they, they work together at just a hundred other things that they're probably working with and all these tentacles going out. So it can be scary or you can look at it as like helpful. You know what I mean? So I hope you enjoyed this little episode on the EPA and I hope that you stay involved with issues regarding 
supporting the EPA and regulation or conservation wherever you live. And remember, if you enjoy it, don't destroy it. Uh, Don't litter. Don't throw your oil down the drains. Don't burn your old tires or oil. Don't bury your oil old bikes or any old fluids or parts underground. Uh, Don't brap until you crap. I just made that one up. It doesn't make any sense. Um, But don't crap in someone else's garden, maybe. I don't know. Human crap's probably not that great of a fertilizer. Um, And don't be scared to go electric when the time comes. Even my grandpa got off of his old steam cycle way back, and and he didn't even make a fuss when two-strokes were banned. He basically followed Preston Petty's example who Preston Petty if you don't know he's an old old scrambler he raced in motocross before it was called motocross back when it was called scrambles um he raced dirt track and he does it today at like a hundred thousand years old on a zero motorcycle so he made the switch from you know the first probably rigid frame uh flat trackers and and scramblers to an e-bike, which he says is like way beyond the capabilities of other bikes out there. So yeah, don't be afraid to make the change. Just remember the EBA can work with you or against you and uh tricky Dick Nixon. Yeah. He not only did he start the EPA, he was a Republican. He cared about the environment, but he also saw China for what it was, which is a plethora of people able to do cheap work. So he didn't necessarily go over there, but it's funny looking at the world nowadays and seeing how big of a deal the EPA and the, like the Kyoto Compact and all that stuff around the world is and has been, and the whole world is focusing on climate change, um, whether it's natural or man-made. Um, they're just focusing on it. Um, and then also how crazy it is that China like makes everything for every nation now, pretty much. I mean, who China doesn't outsource anything. <laughs> so at any rate, that is interesting. And on a side note, if you don't remember the 80s that well, but you don't remember people telling you not to throw like hairspray and stuff into fireplaces or puncture the can because it kills the ozone, look up HARP. H-A-A-R-P. I think you might be able to find it on the NOAA, the N-O-A-A, National Atmospheric and Oceanographic Organization, or whatever the hell. Go look at that and see what we think is man-made, or what we think is uh, chemicals and other stuff is just like some crazy, devious uh, government exercise. So at any rate, yeah, there's some pretty interesting stuff in there. I hope you liked this and it's time for us to get out of here. So let's just do that. EPA, suck it. Hey everybody, one last thing before I go this week, and that is, of course, our DIY tech tip for the week. This is going to be a short one and a quick one, and it's something that I've dealt with in the past, and I hope you have the you know, common sense uh, to take this into consideration. Whenever you're out at a custom car show, custom bike show, whatever you're doing, if you're checking out a paint uh, scheme, if you're looking at the interior of a car or, you know, sitting on a bike, hell, even if you're riding your friend's bike, there's one little nuisance that tends to, you know, wreak havoc on specialty paint jobs, and that is belts necklaces, Apple watches, any sort of bling, um, Pokemon Go players just walking around without looking. What it is, it's 
the fact that you know a lot of times people don't think about this stuff that hangs off your body or that is scratchy and you're leaning up against something or you're looking into something and all of a sudden your necklace drags across someone's super cherry custom paint or you're sitting on your friend's bike and unbeknownst to you your pretty punk rock belt is uh, scratching up the gas tank as you're leaning forward stuff like this is stuff you have to consider when you're at a car show especially for me i take photos a lot of times when i'm at bike shows and, and events and i'm looking at cool bikes i got stuff hanging off me like a camera bag sometimes a camelback a camera swinging around plus my belt my knives, you know, I usually have a knife or a multi-tool on me hanging off my belt. All this stuff, if you're not paying attention, you're walking in between bikes. Like at Born Free, the bikes were just packed. You could barely squeeze between them as it was. And walking between them with all this junk on you is likely to scratch a, a tank or a fender or tip a handlebar if you're not lucky. Or if you're not careful, rather. <laughs> if you're lucky, you don't hit it. So that's my tech tip for this week is watch out for that stuff. And like I said, you're riding your friend's bike and you're leaning forward and maybe he's He's got a cool cafe racer or maybe she's got a bitch and drag racer and it's something where you basically have to put your belly up against a tank or lean over the tank. Make sure if you've got a, your big Texas rodeo belt buckle or like I have a belt buckle that kind of is, you know, got a couple little prongs coming out of it and, uh, you know, those things are sharper than you think. Um, I got a lot of shirts with holes in them right there, which means that although my shirt rides over my belt, it rubs up against stuff and rubs a hole. I mean, that's how sharp these things are. So imagine that against a, a gas tank. It's going to leave a really nice scratch. Another cr- crummy thing, you're leaning over to take a picture of a gas cap or something that's like painted in the in the uh, top of a tank or a fender, and all of a sudden your camera bag comes around and poof, hits the side of it and scratches it up. You don't want to do that. So that's my DIY tech tip for this week. Whether you are taking photos uh, for yourself or for a website or a blog, whether you're you know, in somebody's garage, going around their bike, helping them work on it, whatever it is, when you're around any sort of custom painted surface or something that's got some delicate body work, be careful, be aware of yourself around uh, the, the bike and make sure you don't scratch it with, with the stuff that's hanging off you. I, uh, another thing is like turn signals and stuff like that. Watch out your legs when you're walking by them. I'm not very self-aware of my legs and a lot of times I hit my own turn signals and they're on these custom metal brackets that I made and they always get tweaked and bent out. One time I was at a cafe, came out, my turn signal was broken and hanging off and that's why I made these uh, special metal brackets that they'll bend and bend back and I didn't want to have uh, some custom aluminum one break off again. So that's it. That's my tech tip for this week. See you all later. Creative Writing would like to apologize to the following persons, organizations, um, times in history, all of the above. Let's start out with Ireland. Sorry, Ireland. Sorry, Corey, Sarah, Paulette, and Douglas. Perhaps you're not in the UK or Ireland, at least all of you, but perhaps some of you are. We're sorry. We are sorry, BMW. We're sorry for mentioning your carbon frames and your two new engines that are coming out. Also sorry... Casey Stoner, Kagiba, Bimoda, the GP9 from Ducati, and Ducati Motorcycle Company. We are sorry to MotorcycleNews.com. Thank you for delivering such a wonderful article. 
Sorry to Super Sick and Number 58 and Dorna and MotoGP. Sorry to Harley Davidson. Sorry to Jared Mees, the Indian FTR 750, uh, the AMA Flat Track GNC1 and GNC2 for that matter. Sorry to Indian Motor Company. Sorry to Declining Sales and Baby Boomers. Sorry to Baggers, Doctors, Lawyers, Honda Gold Wings, and other expensive bikes. We are sorry to Brad Anderson from Car Scoops. Sorry to the state of South Carolina and South Carolina. They're close to each other. Check them out if you're not familiar with America. We are sorry to the 200 employees that are going to be losing their jobs at Harley-Davidson. We are excited for the 250 new jobs at the Honda plant. We are sorry to Honda ATVs and side-by-sides. We are sorry to the LA Times and Charles Fleming. Sorry to Newcomb's Ranch. Sorry to the patrons. And sorry for the water that's running out of the well. We are sorry, EPA. You are probably not trying to ruin our fun. Sorry, little Ricky from Yorba Linda, California. And sorry, Yorba Linda, California. Sorry, Quakers. Sorry, little Ricky, who is also known as Richard Nixon. Sorry to Russia and China. Sorry to Cuba. Sorry, Chile. Uh, Ironically enough, we're sorry to Egypt and Syria, as well as Saudi Arabia, Israel, and um, Iran. But uh, dig this, folks. As of the uh, final editing of this podcast, guess who's at it again? Syria and Israel going back and forth again. So we may be in for another oil embargo because we know we kind of backed both of those guys. But, you know, we know we back one of them for sure. Sorry, Latin America. Sorry, Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Sorry to communists, commie apes, leftists, Democrats, Republicans, and the 12th Congressional District of California. Sorry, OPEC. Sorry, Middle East and Arab world. Sorry, 1973. Sorry, oil embargoes. Sorry to the Clean Air Act, HMOs, OSHA, uh, Environmental National Policy. Sorry to National Parks and the Endangered Species Act. Sorry to Marketplace.org, the California Air Resources Board, the chairman of CARB, Mary Nichols. Sorry to the ZEV mandate and all zero emissions vehicles. Sorry to AMA and SEMA. Sorry to recreational people that like to recreate and be recreationalistic. Sorry, SCORE and Baja California. Sorry, Cadillac Escalades rolling on 22s. We are sorry to high gas prices. 
And once again, I'm sorry for your ears for having to listen to this. Sorry, Preston Petty, you're the last person we mentioned. And uh, take it easy. Hey, man, keep the rubber rolling and the blubber going. You know what I'm saying? All right. Peace. sure i don't have to edit this i'll just go ahead and publish it as is so hey last week we talked about the ducati no we didn't uh now listen i there's still a market i don't i just totally forgot what i was talking about the aging and growing aren't we all aging and growing so with the news that harley is going to be laying off around 200 people for the aging and and uh growing you know, uh, from Carstoop, Honda recently announced that they are actually going to be flying a plane across a candy river.